Today's session will begin with a conversation with Nambi Okike, co-founder and managing partner of 645 Ventures. Nambi, welcome to the show. Your audio is not coming through. Um, I'm on the phone here. Can you hear me? Now we can. Yes, perfect. All right. Okay, great. Great. Pleasure to so, be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us about uh, 645 Ventures and your journey a little bit so we get to know you. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, you know, we are a seed to Series A venture fund. Uh, we're headquartered in New York. Uh, we invest primarily in enterprise SaaS and enterprise infrastructure software. Um, so we're investing in companies that are typically just getting off the ground, but typically have what we call early predictable performance metrics. So very large markets, um, you know, great founders, uh, and typically some kind of competitive barrier or comp competitive differentiation early on in, in the product. Uh, so we started our fund about six years ago now, so back in um, – at the beginning of, uh, of 2014. Um, and really, you know, the fund began really as a result of the experiences that myself and my co-founder Aaron Holiday had had previously. So I'd spent about nine years working for a fund called Inside Ventures. Uh, Inside Ventures mm -hmm. today is one of the largest venture funds on the East Coast. Uh, they manage yeah. about $15, $15 billion of capital. And I spent many years there uh, investing. I had uh, close to 20 deals I'd done. I had nine exits, uh, so uh, four IPOs and five acquisitions, and had really learned the, the venture business at Insight uh, and had seen uh, some, some really interesting businesses over that time. And, and then I wanted to take a lot of my learnings and move them to earlier stage and, and develop a, a fund that had a more systematic approach to investing. So I, I came together with my partner, Aaron, who is a software developer and, and uh, engineer by background in um, we, we started to build our fund uh, almost six years ago now. How big is the fund? Yeah, so, so we manage about $50 million. Um, our current fund is a $40 million fund. Uh, so we raised that fund last, uh, last fall. Uh, and that's an institutional fund. So we have um, several large uh, institutions like Princeton University and uh, the Mellon Foundation mm -hmm. and um, you know, some great high net worth individuals uh, invested in our fund as well. So folks like uh, Mark Andreessen and um, Howard Morgan, co-founder of First Round Capital, and um, Robert Smith from Vista Equity. So we've got some great LPs uh, who, who back us. Okay. And um, define early, uh, early stage, define seed stage for us the way you see it. Because um, as you know, the venture business has fragmented quite significantly. So early stage or seed stage is no longer one, uh, you know, moniker, so to speak. People have their own definitions. There's pre-seed, there's seed, there's post-seed, pre-series A, <laughs> small series A. So all of that <laughs> falls true. roughly in the seed and early stage bucket. So where do you fit in that spectrum? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a wonderful point. There's really been a fragmentation, so to speak, of early stage and it's really resulted from a lot of different factors, right? Everything from this proliferation of micro VCs, there's been a rise of crowdfunding, there's been growth of super angels, and all of those entities kind of play in different places. So the way we define it really is companies that are 
early early product marketing, what, what we describe as early predictable performance metrics. And I can kind of describe how we look at the world. So, so our belief is that there's today there, there's a lower amount of capital required to really get in business. You don't need, need yep. to buy servers. You correct. don't need to do very expensive sales and marketing. And so as a result, companies, especially companies that are selling downloadable software or, or software for SMBs or even enterprise software in some cases, they can get started with a small amount of money. They can raise, say, 500000 you know, from an angel group or from a group of investors and really get in the game. Um, and we kind of define those rounds as pre-seed, you know, kind of typically the kind of get in business type of rounds. We typically look at the round after that. So what we're looking for are companies that have typically built an early product and have some early traction. Um, so if it's selling, if it's software, for example, selling to small businesses, maybe they have an, uh, 10 early customers or 15 early customers, early use cases where we can see, you know, do the customers like the product? Is there early evidence that they're willing to pay? But typically these are companies, these, these are companies that don't have a lot of revenue. Usually when we come upon them, they may have a couple hundred thousand of, of annualized recurring revenue, uh, but they're really looking to scale up. And, and typically they have a big market opportunity and founders who have a high level of dedication. And what we do is we typically invest to help companies scale to Series A. So, you know, we're typically investing on average $750,000 to $1 million in a round. Usually the rounds that we lead may be 2 to $3 million in size. And that's sufficient mm -hmm. capital to enable the company to really scale to a Series A round. And what we look for are companies that we believe can get to you know, very competitive Series A rounds led by the top firms. And so if you look at our portfolio historically, you know, we've had firms like Charles River Ventures, Index Ventures, Bessemer, and Dreesen Horowitz kind of lead the Series A's of, and Series B's of our companies. And, and what we look for are companies that can get to that stage. And we view it as, as our mission and our goal is to really work with those companies to kind of help them get to that next level um, mm -hmm. and to put the pieces in place to do that. And that's helping to build the sales team, helping to build the engineering team, helping them really think through the story and the brand of the company and, and really, you know, help them get to the next, next stage. So um, what about geography? Is this happening around the country, around the world, just in New York? What's your preference? No, that's, a, that's another great question. So one of our core beliefs is that in today's entrepreneurial environment, you can start a great company from anywhere. And oftentimes, if you're a software entrepreneur, it, it is even advantageous to start a company in a smaller city where, you know, you, could, you can get access to the best talent and where there aren't as many mm -hmm. companies competing for the best engineers and salespeople. So the way right. we run our model is we call it outbound sourcing. And what you've, what you've seen historically is that outbound sourcing has been applied very effectively at the growth stage at firms like, like Insight, where I spent many years. But historically, growth stage, uh, the, the, the outbound sourcing wasn't applied very well at the early stage because historically, there wasn't a lot of data on startups. Startups took more money to get to the next stage, and it was very hard to run a sourcing model. But we believe that's now changed. So if you think about our model, what we do is we use our own internal data, software, analytics, and we have a sourcing team of folks who proactively call on companies. And so just to give mm -hmm. you, you know, one case study, the most recent deal we did 
is, is investing in a company called Adea, which is a very uh, high potential internet security software company. And this company was founded by the former uh, CIO of a company called Duo Security, which is a, a $2 billion plus acquisition by, by Cisco. This company is in Detroit, so it's located in Michigan. Um, Duo, as you may know, was also in Michigan, and so there's a lot of great alumni and folks who have built their careers at Duo that may be looking to join a new startup. And the way we found this company was really through our own internal analytics. We were able to identify this founder as a very high potential founder, reach out to him proactively. His name is Rafael Maltone, and we were able to lead his, uh, his first uh, venture round. And so that's really reflective of our, mo of our model. It's an outbound sourcing model. And so if you look at our portfolio, you know, we have investments, obviously, in New York where we are located, but we have investments in, you know, down in Texas. We have investments in the Bay Area. We have investments in D.C. and Boston. So we really run this outbound sourcing model, and we look for the best companies wherever we can find them. And, and our belief, again, is that, you know, today's entrepreneurial environment is producing great companies in a much broader uh, set of locations than has happened historically. Well, and also I think it's uh, much easier to build companies when you don't have your staff being poached all the time, right? It's not just easier, <laughs> it's kind of impossible to build a company yeah. if your team is constantly being poached. So if you're located yeah. in, in a major location where there is a lot of competition for talent, it's, it's very, very problematic, very troublesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. So um, the other question I have is, you do both B2B and B2C, right? Yes. Yeah. So you, you know, said... Majority... Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. I wanted to elaborate on the questions. Like you give the example of the, you know, let's say a company is selling to small businesses and you want to see about 10 customers, 10, 15 customers yeah. to see validation. Could you complete the picture and talk about what do you want to see in validation when it comes to a B2C business because the you know, metrics are different, what constitutes something promising uh, is different. So how do you think about B2C validation? Now that's a great question. And as you described, we do do both B2B and B2C. Probably about 75% of our deals are B2B, so majority is, is, is B2B. But we do do some direct-to-consumer as well, and we have a couple of companies that have gotten to to a large scale on the consumer side. So I can talk through a couple of case studies and just describe it. So on the consumer side, we look at a couple of different things. The first thing we think about is what's the quality of the business model um, and is there early evidence that the business model is working? So the way we would size up, for example, a consumer marketplace might be a little bit different than the way we size up a digital media company. For consumer mm -hmm. marketplaces, typically you can see early transactions, you can see you know, something called take rate, uh, which is the gross margin. You know, you can see frequency of purchase. Whereas a digital media company, you might want to see more growth in users and more growth in activity because the business model may be later in coming. So we think a lot about quality of business model and is there evidence that this business model is starting to manifest itself. So maybe just to give you, you know, a couple of examples, for example, on the online marketplace category, we're investors in a business called Goldbelly. You know, Goldbelly is a direct-to-consumer marketplace that enables customers to access what they call local legendary food makers. Uh, so these are food makers around the country 
who, you know, have local followings, people love their foods, but these food makers may want to sell nationally. And Goldbelly provides a platform for them to do that. So they provide marketing, they provide an e-commerce platform, they provide, um, you know, they connect them up with, with FedEx for shipping. And so we describe it as kind of the, the hub for food makers to be able to sell nationally. So if you look at our investment in Goldbelly, uh, when we first came upon that company, uh, they had done roughly about a, a million of, of gross uh, transaction volume in their first year, and they were tracking mm-hmm. to about $3 million of gross uh, volume uh, the next year. And so they had early, early evidence of, of revenue, uh, and they were really showing that they could bring on uh, food makers. I think at the time they might have had, you know, uh, 30 or so different food establishments on the platform who were selling. And when we looked at Goldbelly, the thing that was most interesting to us was a combination of the frequent purchasing by end customers, uh, the high level of satisfaction, and obviously the growth in, in, in revenue. Um, and so we were able to get comfortable with that business opportunity, invest in their kind of what mm-hmm. they call the second seed round, and then, and then reinvest at the Series A. And the com- company subsequently has gotten to, to very large scale. So that's an example of a, a marketplace uh, deal. A second one I might describe, which is in a different category of consumer, is a business called Overtime. Um, Overtime is headquartered in New York. I describe Overtime as ESPN meets Snapchat, so very viral uh, content that's oftentimes user-generated, uh, really mm-hmm. focusing on the millennial generation who consumes sports content in a very different way. They're looking at highlights. They're sharing things on social media, and oftentimes they're not watching a full game. They want to really get inside the game and understand the players and, and, and the players' lives. And so when we first came upon overtime, the, at the time they actually were pre-revenue, uh, but what we were seeing in the business was really rapid growth in, 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 in views, in shares of videos, uh, in you know, frequency of use by, by users, and they were really starting to develop a real following um, you know, in, in their target demographic. And so our belief there was that the behavior that we were seeing um, that overtime was, was, was showing could really translate in, into revenue over time, and, and it has through a combination of uh, commerce and advertising. So in an area like that, it's much more about the behavior of the users rather than a specific, you know, revenue goal, so to speak, or revenue milestone. Mm-hmm. And, and what uh, business models are you comfortable with when it comes to media? Because, you know, media has really got slaughtered, right, in the <laughs> last <laughs> yeah. few decades. Yeah. You know, we don't do a lot of media, but I think in the case of um, Overtime as an example, what we like to see there is a couple of different things. I think we like to see businesses that have evidence of a differentiated voice, a differentiated uh, content strategy, typically a low-cost content strategy. So in the case of Overtime, because almost all the content, most of the content is user-generated, they have a much lower cost of content creation. But we also like to see kind of a multi-tiered revenue model. So as an example, you know, Overtime has, has a commerce business. You know, they, they mm-hmm. sell apparel, they sell uh, products to customers, and, mm-hmm. and they've kind of complemented the traditional, you know, advertising-driven revenue model with a commerce business which we think is really smart uh, and provides kind of a, a, a more balanced um, approach. So, so again, we don't do a lot in digital media, but where we do do it, it's a combination of very large market opportunity, good business model, typically multi-tiered business model, um, and a belief that 
this can be really disruptive to to larger incumbents and and where you know we think the market opportunity can yield a large company. Um, but again, it's it, it's few and far between uh, because as you described, um, you know uh, th there haven't been a lot of examples of of media companies that have been those kind of billion dollar exits. Mm -hmm. So. Um in terms of your outbound sourcing, does it include yes. international companies, companies that are, uh -huh. you know, building elsewhere and then trying to come into the U.S. perhaps, and or maybe yeah. working on different markets? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, and, and for many years before co-founding our firm, I did a lot of international investing. So I was investing in Europe and Latin America and had several, several exits uh, in those markets. And so... Have, um, have good experience kind of investing in, um, in international markets. And, and I agree, there's, there's a lot of opportunity in, in many different parts of the world. You know, at mm -hmm. our firm, you know, when we began, because we wanted to make sure we could work closely with our companies and we just have one office in, in New York, um, we began focusing on the U.S., uh, focusing on companies uh, domestically. But we've started to broaden that a little bit over time. So we've done two, two investments um, in companies that began – in the UK, um, Storage OS, um, in a marketplace company uh, called called Fat Llama. Um, so we've been active there um, in, in Europe. Uh, we'll continue to be, and I think over time we will we will broaden out. Uh, so we will eventually um, look to to LATAM. You know, we'll probably eventually look to to Asia. But the nature nature of the outbound sourcing model is one where, although you can identify the company internationally, you also have to be able to add value. And so one thing we think a lot about is over time can we build a value add team, what we call a success team, to be able to really help companies with, um, with, with the challenges that they have and the growth opportunities. And one thing we do look for where we're doing a deal outside the U.S. is a local partner, um, a firm mm -hmm. that can really help us, um, that has local domain expertise um, and can kind of add value um, in areas where, where we may not have um, you know, all of the expertise. And so, as, as we grow and expand, I think we think a lot about having local relationships with great, great partners. All right. What um, trends are you seeing in your deal flow? If you look at maybe the last 18 months deal flow, yeah. what, what strikes you as emerging trends? Yeah, definitely. You know, there are really three themes um, that we use to kind of guide our, our sourcing strategy. And I can kind of go through each of them. Um, and these themes really have, have, have evolved as a result of what we're seeing in the market as well as where we've done well historically and, and our belief around kind of what trends are going to be driving um, areas that we focus on. So, so the first is what we call software for the second wave. And we describe that as verticalized software companies that are pursuing market verticals that historically have had low software penetration, but now mm -hmm. kind of given the evolution of software, given the proliferation of mobile phones, enable workers in those industries to really kind of improve how they do yeah. business. And so yeah. if you think about, you know, examples of that, you're seeing it in a lot of different areas. In construction, you might have seen the recent acquisition of Plan Grid. You're seeing it in areas such as real estate. Um, you know, we've been pretty active in a couple of different categories within there. So as an example, one of our most recent deals that fits that thesis is a business called Squire. Squire provides software for the barbershop and salon market. Now, the barbershop yeah. market historically hasn't really used software. You go to the barbershop and you sit there and you wait for your haircut, and typically you pay with cash, and typically you don't have the ability to book via mobile phone, and 
you know, you can't use your credit card and, you know, the, the, the barbershop itself typically doesn't have software for payroll. And, and, and what we found now in that, that industry is that barbershops are much more willing to adopt technology because they can make their businesses run better. So that's really what, what Squire does, and it's really kind of representative of that theme software for the second wave. So that's the first theme. Uh, the second theme that we are really looking um, closely into is what we call uh, citizen professionals. And we describe citizen professionals as an area where the tools um, of data science, uh, data analytics, uh, advanced algorithms can enable uh, workers who aren't necessarily experts in certain areas to become like experts. So as an mm -hmm. example, a company like Tableau is a good example of that theme where now, you know, folks can do really advanced data visualization and data, data graphs without necessarily having a PhD in, in data science or programming. And so we're seeing a lot of different areas where that approach is starting to manifest itself into new startups. So everything from financial analysis to the legal field to the, the accounting and, and financial field. So this, this theme of citizen professionals um, is one where we think there are going to be a lot of interesting startups kind of coming out of that really improve how the average worker kind of does their daily work and, and enables them to really have the skills that, you know, are similar to what you might have seen with, with very expensive experts over time. And then the last theme is what we call personalized uh, consumer experiences. And I think I touched on it a little bit um, in describing some of our consumer investments. One of our beliefs is that you're going to see a new wave of consumer companies that provide much more personalized experiences. Um, mm -hmm. So one example of a business that fits that theme that obviously has been very successful is Stitch Fix. If you think about what Stitch Fix does in terms of providing personalized, um, you know, personalized styling experiences to customers using really advanced data and data science um, combined with a personal touch. And so that's one example of a business that, you know, kind of fits that theme. And we think we're going to see a lot of new startups that are in those categories over time. And so we're looking for that next wave of, of, of startups that provide these personalized uh, consumer products and services using data, uh, typically you know, leveraging the internet, and oftentimes, you know, having new, um, new cost, um, uh, cost advantages versus incumbents that don't have nearly the ability to tailor their products and services to uh, the customer demand. So, so those are the three um, themes we're spending a lot of time in, and, and we're looking for great startups that, you know, are, are fitting those themes. So I want to comment a little bit on your personalized uh, consumer experience theme. I yeah. did a, one of the first ever online fashion companies, personalized fashion, oh, cool. very early, 20 years ago. So um, the data was not quite there at that point. But, yes. um, but now, of course, that's something that a lot of people are working on. But mm -hmm. this, is, this is a category of products that require quite a bit of technology development yes. to work. So, uh, yes. so the question is a, is a bit of a subtle question. You want to come in after there is some validation. Is there a group of investors that you're working with who are willing to do the earlier part of this kind of business development? Because this is yeah. not something you can do on the back of a napkin. <laughs> no, no, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, and it's something we struggle with a bit because, you know, when we find a, um, an exceptional founding team um, that may not have yet, you know, uh, even a prototype, it may just be an idea. 
you know, we, we debate a little bit internally, should we, should we jump in a bit earlier um, and invest and help the company kind of build some of those tools and build the team? Because as you described, it's, it's not cheap to, to do that. So I think we'll do that a bit more, especially with, with founding teams where we have a lot of conviction around their ability to build. But I would say, I would say more generally, you know, we do partner with different types of investors. Um, so we are oftentimes partnering with what you might call pre-seed funds, you know, folks that are mm-hmm. writing that first check when it really is just an idea on a napkin. And there are several pre-seed funds that we really admire. So as an example, you know, Charles Hudson and Precursor Ventures, we think he is, is very good in identifying, you know, really top founders who are, you know, just looking for that first check to kind of be able to, um, to get into business. You know, we have uh, Notation Capital, which is in, um, in New York, which does good work. Uh, there's another fund, Afore Capital. We just actually invested in a company um, after a four did the pre-seed. We invested in the traditional seed and, and led that round. And so they're, they're a great fund um, that really gets, does that first check. So, so we do look for partners um, who, who are a little bit earlier than us and can, can provide that first, first check. And we also do work with angel investors as well um, who can provide that capital. Um, but I think over time, as you described, we may be a little, a little bit optimistic there where we see an exceptional team in a big market and maybe maybe write a little bit of a smaller check ourselves to be able to be in that round and start to work with the founders and, and then be able to write a bigger check um, as they get to, you know, more of a larger, you know, institutional seed round, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, these are not quite as lean startups as some of the other <laughs> categories we've discussed um, Personalization yeah. is heavy-duty technology, so you need a technical founder who can access yeah. the data on which to run the personalization engines. For that, they need to do some this dev potentially to get access yeah. to the data. So it's 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 a lot more complex than the you know traditional lean startup model that we you know I think the ecosystem has scaled the lean startup model very nicely, and we're seeing great bootstrap yeah. startups come out. But uh, but yeah. I think there is there's a case to be made about building a bit more of an infrastructure and ecosystem to do fast yeah. startups to solve some of the problems that, that we're talking about as well. Yep, you're exactly right. You know, these companies do need advanced technical teams. They need technical founders, but they also need, you know, early capital to be able to, to test things out and really get the algorithms correct and have, have a large enough training data set to be able to, you know, um, to provide a product that, that starts to work. So I think you're exactly right. Yeah. All right. Well, very nice conversation. And I, I love the way you have really, um, you know, articulated the three areas that you are interested in. And, and it's very Thank specific, you. very well thought through. So congratulations on that. Oh, really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to, to join today.